Hello, and welcome to the Re Reread podcast, where we talk about what contemporary writers like you and me can learn from classic literature. Today's lesson from Moby Dick is don't tell, but also maybe don't show, at least not in the usual way. In a chapter called Of the Monstrous Pictures of Whales, Melville grumbles about the lousy state of whale painting in the mid-19th century. Basically, as far as he can tell, there are no good representations of whales in the world. From 17th century engravings to Chinese cups to oil dealers' street signs, artists have spectacularly failed to catch the whale. Even scientific drawings get it wrong. Consider, most of the scientific drawings have been taken from the stranded fish, and these are about as correct as a drawing of a wrecked ship with broken back would correctly represent the noble animal itself in all its undashed pride of hull and spars. For Melville, the whale represents a special problem for the author. It's a real animal, yet almost none of his readers have actually seen one or even an accurate picture of one. The author cannot count on a few representative details to conjure up an image in the reader's mind. The problem is also an opportunity, as are all problems if you read management training books, which I have, which is to say I read one when I was trying and failing to be a manager. But I digress. The whale's body is where fiction meets science, God meets flesh. The whale pushes earthly powers of representation to its limits. And at these limits, Melville, or Ishmael, who can tell, seems to throw up his hands once again. For all these reasons, then, any way you may look at it, you must needs conclude that the great Leviathan is that one creature in the world which must remain unpainted to the last— True, one portrait may hit the mark much nearer than another, but none can hit it with any very considerable degree of exactness. So there is no earthly way of finding out precisely what the whale really looks like, and the only mode in which you can derive even a tolerable idea of his living contour is by going a-whaling yourself. But by so doing, you run no small risk of being eternally stove and sunk by him. Wherefore, it seems to me you had best not be too fastidious in your curiosity touching this leviathan. Melville was an imaginative guy, but he did not foresee Jacques Cousteau. Today, I'd expect few among us to say that we have no tolerable idea of what a whale looks like. All I've ever seen with my own eyes, of course, amounts to a spout, part of a back, and if I'm very lucky, a glimpse of quickly disappearing flippers or flukes. And as far as I know, I've only seen those parts of humpbacks and gray whales. However, I have little trouble conjuring what I consider an adequate picture of a whale in my mind's eye. Thanks to film and TV and amazing underwater photography, the whale has become normalized. Because of such visual technologies, we as readers have also become fastidious in our curiosity about pretty much everything in fiction. Authors must create credible imagery because today's readers are much more familiar with the flora and fauna and activities of the world, even in those parts that we are very distant from. And if we don't already have those images in our mind, we can put them there very quickly via Google. This requirement sometimes leads to episodes such as one I read years ago in Ian McEwan's Saturday, which still bothers me to this day. McEwan observed a brain surgeon at work to inform the creation of that novel's main character, and the book gives us umpteen pages of detailed brain surgery that feel to me more like proof of that meticulous research than a contribution to the story. Show-don't-tell seems to mean visual showing above all. I read in some how-to-write-a-novel book, whose name or author I cannot remember, that precise visual detail is expected in fiction because film and TV have become our dominant modes of storytelling. Readers' imaginations have been so shaped by moving images that fiction that deviates from this structure now seems somehow wrong. 
I also remember Zadie Smith remarking in an interview that she had discovered to her chagrin that her novels contained commercial breaks. It's the same for a lot of us who grew up watching television. I have no doubt that my sense of narrative rhythm and my desire to put asterisks between paragraphs at certain points is partly driven by a subconscious voice intoning, we'll be back right after this. Now that we have commercial-free streaming, a younger author may not have this particular voice embedded in them. Their consciousness is, no doubt, fragmented in other ways. But what would it be like as authors to reject, just as an exercise, this tyranny of the visual? Is it even possible to disentangle ourselves from the moving image industrial complex and structure stories on some other principle? What is different about stories that were written before these things colonized our collective gray matter? What about readers who are visually impaired or who have never experienced vision as the majority understands it? How might we engage other senses to create not only a fuller picture, but a more striking, less expected one? I find that I still much too easily default to the visual, but I'm going to try to remember that there are other very rich and interesting ways to experience a written story.